You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 15, and then we'll pray together once more. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuit the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity in a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come humbly to your word, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to each and every one of us, speak to us uh, as your church, and very specifically this church as a community here in this city, and I pray that you would both challenge and encourage us today through the truths found in this profound and wonderful book, and I pray that the end result would be we appreciate you more than we ever have that we would worship you more than we ever have in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, There was a Time Magazine uh, article uh, several years back done about a French artist in his 40s who believed that the job of the artist was to make people ask the questions they weren't asking. And so uh, the, the author of the article dubbed this man the question maker. And when I read that, I thought, That is exactly what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is. He is the question maker, getting us to ask the questions that we often don't ask, even for Christians, because so often we don't ask the most important questions. Um, As I was coming up here, I was reflecting on all this kind of random, all the great bumper stickers I grew up seeing around the Bay Area, and one of them was, trees are the answer saw it everywhere, you know, and and I grew up in the North Bay. It was like all, you know, after the summer of love, everyone came out and they all became my teachers. So I had, you know, pot smoking witches um, in fourth and fifth grade. I I remember very vividly. So trees are the answer. And I remember seeing that going, what is the question? Like, you want to make a teepee? Yeah. Like a fire? Sure. It depends on the question you're asking, and so often our questions are shallow, like, like, how can I get a raise? That's not necessarily a bad question, but by itself, disconnected from everything else, what does it mean? 
We need someone to help us come ask the questions that matter. And that's exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes does. And what's interesting about this book is that it summarizes life in a way that rings true for all of us, for religious and non-religious. It's ancient and yet it has a modern feel when we read it because we realize even though times change, people are the same. That's one of his points in the passages that we just read. There's a lot of stuff happening. And sure, there's new technology. You might say to the preacher of Ecclesiastes, well, we, we have all these new things. He says, yes, but our problems are the same because people are really the same. It's ancient, and yet it has a modern feel for it asks the questions that all of us have in our hearts. That's probably why Herman Melville, the famous author of Moby Dick, once said that Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books. But it's also for that reason that is, it has confused a lot of Christians throughout the ages. A lot of Christians um, have really struggled with this book. Its statements and questions are so powerful, so blunt, that it has made many a fundamentalist blush over the years. In fact, the medieval church once called Ecclesiastes a dangerous book. It's a dangerous book, they said. So why on earth is Ecclesiastes in the Bible? What is its connection to Genesis? And what does that have to do with us today living in the cities in which God has placed us? Well, to understand the answers to those questions, we need to get into the mind of this man that we'll call the preacher. That's what he calls himself. Uh, many believe that he was King Solomon uh, living around the 10th century BC. Uh, others don't. But either way, he was someone who was extremely successful and who was at the very center of Israel's political life and religious life. He was someone who had seen it all, had it all, knew it all. And he's wrestling with these grand questions. What does it all mean? He's wrestling with Life under the sun. It's a phrase that appears over and over again in this book. That means that he's looking out at the observable world. Before bringing God into it, he's just looking out at what can be seen. He's an Israelite, but he's a skeptic. And he's trying to make sense of everything that he sees. He's trying to find meaning and purpose, and yet he cannot escape all the difficulties that are right in front of him. And so what he does is he actually takes us through a guided tour, if you will, through all the various approaches that we all take to life. And he shows us where they inevitably lead. He shows us where they will take us and where they will end if we actually follow through with them. And in so doing, I believe, he actually pulls us out of superficiality and futility and he brings us to a place where we can actually discover joy and meaning and purpose. How? He does it in three very simple ways. He helps us to observe, first of all, what is often hidden in plain sight. He helps us ask the questions that we're often afraid to ask. And thirdly, he helps us listen to the revelation of God. So first of all, one of the great things about this book and why I love it so much is that he helps us observe what is often hidden in plain sight, right in front of all of us, day in, day out in our cities, but we usually don't talk about it. Uh, you know the excitement of when you find a friend or someone you really relate with, um, or maybe you read a book or you heard a song and you're really excited because they've observed the, th the same things that you've observed and, and they've noticed the same things that you've noticed. And you're like, they know me, they understand me. <laughs> 
I think that's why so many people loved, uh, you remember when Adele's album came out at the beginning of last year? Like everyone secretly loved Adele. Like in LA, I saw grown men just crying in their car, like rolling in the deep, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> windows down. And, you know, every, everyone loved Adele, you know, because her album's all about heartbreak and everyone's had their heart broken. And I remember seeing a, a British um, journalist who was actually interviewing Adele and he's asking her all these questions and finally says, can I just hug you? <laughs> he just, I, I just want to hold you. <laughs> there's, there's a sense that we can relate with um, other people who have observed the same things. And I think that's why I was so drawn to Ecclesiastes because I read it and I said, finally, somebody's saying what needs to be said. Somebody's just, just, just saying it. He's just putting it right out there in the open. What is the point? He's observing all these things under the sun before bringing God into it. And because he's doing that, he tells it like it is, the good and the bad. What's interesting, this book neither goes to a, a kind of fatalistic pessimism, that's not Ecclesiastes, nor does it go into a naive optimism, which is how we usually function, right? Like everything sucks, everything's horrible, I wanna die. Or on the other hand, like, everything's fine, it's all happy and wonderful. And he would say no to both of those positions. He calls life what it is, the good and the bad, standing side by side, because that's how life is. On the one moment, you could, you could just be enjoying the most beautiful day, and it could be interrupted by a phone call that one of your relatives has died. The good and the bad happen side by side, and that's why many people have actually accused Ecclesiastes of being contradictory. They'll say, oh, you read through it, and he'll say one thing, but then he'll go on, and he'll say another, but that's how life is. It's contradictory. Is life beautiful? Yes. Does life suck? Yes. Both and. It's a paradox that we're all trying to, to figure out. It depends on the circumstance. When things seem to be going well, life is great. When things are going bad, life is difficult. There's times where he'll say, you know, it's better off dead. But then a chapter later, he'll say, you know what? A dead dog is better than a, or a, a living dog is better than a dead lion. It depends on the circumstance. There's an old cartoon, I don't know if um, some of you may have seen it, um, that was in the, the newspaper a long time ago, and it shows a, an, an editor poring over a manuscript, and he says, well, which one is it, Mr. Dickens? Is it the best of times or the worst of times? It can't be both. <laughs> and I love that because it demonstrates what we see day in, day out. The preacher helps us to observe what is often hidden in plain sight. He helps us look outward. He helps us look out just beyond our own lives, and he helps us get outside of the classroom. And that's another reason why I think you'll find that you will love this book, because he's not some ivory tower philosopher. He, he's looking at life outside of the classroom. You know those, um, those people who, you know, they just graduated with their philosophy major? Um, we have a lot of those uh, down in L.A., which is always fun. Like, oh, what are you going to do? Be a philosopher? Um, <laughs> You know, they, I have a lot of people in my church, they just graduated, they got their philosophy major, they claim to know everything about life because they watched Zeitgeist on YouTube and they just finished reading Nietzsche and yet they've never suffered, they've never been poor and they've never been to a funeral. And I'm like, kid, just, just don't talk to me right now. It's like, let me tell you, no, 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 no. You, you need to suffer a little bit. <laughs> I'm not that dramatic, but. <laughs> or maybe that's you. Maybe you're the one that like, you know, read some book and you think you've got it all figured out. You would do well to meet the preacher. You would do well to meet this man. He'll take you on a little journey. 
Now, on the other hand, he'll also say to those, that there may be those people who feel like they have had nothing but suffering their whole life. And maybe some of you feel like that. Like, man, I've just been dealt a bad hand. All I've ever had in life is bad luck. And so your temptation would be to think, if I just had success, or if I just had the right family, if I just had money, then everything would be okay. And he actually says, no, because I had those things. So if that's you, you too would do well to meet this preacher. He's taking the time to really look at life un filtered. Something that most of us, even as Christians, rarely take the time to do. To really process things. And usually if we do want to take the time to look at life, we flee to the wilderness. Right? Isn't that what everyone does? Like, oh, I just need to get my life sorted out. You know, I'm going to go to like Big Sur. (laughs) But the preacher would actually say, that's the worst place to go because people aren't there. That'd be the worst place to get it figured all out because you're not in the daily and the mundane around all the people. In fact, the preacher would tell us the city is the best place to ask those questions because you see all the good, the bad, and the ugly right in front of us. He helps us look outward. But this preacher also helps us look inward. This book can be a very devastating book in a good and healthy way. Because he, he, he talks about the various motives and drives that, that really push us towards why we do what we do. Uh, here's a few, for example. Uh, this one is totally devastating, and everyone's in trouble, if this is right. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4 says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. In other words, the reason why everyone in San Francisco works so hard is because of envy. There was one famous author who famously said, when a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. Isn't that how it is? You know, the person you went to to college with, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just doing great. You know, I'm a CEO and, oh, that's great. That's really great. Oh, I got a wife, I got kids, or I got my husband, you know, I've got property, I live in Pack Heights, this is amazing. Oh, I'm so happy for you. It's so great to hear. As you're making a latte in the mission, you know, you're just... (laughs) See, the preacher's saying the real reason that we go, and what happens, if if that's you, what happens? You're like, I'm going to go and I'm going to show them. I'm going to show the world. I'm going to show my parents. (laughs) See, the preacher just says it like it is. He's like, it's really because of envy. You know, I remember um, growing up, you know, I've been a musician most of my life. My mom was like in the Chicago Symphony Choir. She was all about music, raised me on music. And sadly, um, to her dismay, I sold my trumpet and got a guitar um, when I went into junior high. And so, you know, in the 80s, the way you learned to play guitar was by listening to Metallica. So, you know, know, I had this drive. I wanted to learn. But then I met... um, all my friends said, hey, Tim, you're really good. And I'm like, really? You know, trying to like false modesty, but inside, like, that's right. <laughs> Until the day when my friend said, Tim, you're so good. Oh, you ha- have you met Joe? I was like, Joe? That's actually his real name. I'm not just making that up. <laughs> like, Joe, oh, you have to meet Joe because he plays like you play, but better, <laughs> better, better. <laughs> just... <laughs> echoing in my heart like and I remember going over and he was in his garage and we all went in and there he is just shredding and in my heart was like no (laughs) so what did I do I went home and practiced like I never practiced before (laughs) 
I'll show him. Envy. The preacher says, that's really the reason. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show my parents. A a lot of people move to cities because they want to show the folks back home what they can really accomplish in life. It's devastating because he helps us look at the real motives that are actually driving us. Take uh, community, for example. Here's what he has to say uh, about that. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 21 through 22, he says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you, for your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. In other words, we all get so offended when people talk trash about us. Like, oh oh my, I mean, how dare they? The preacher's like, whatever, you did it yesterday. Like, you know that you do it too. So he's, he's observing life unfiltered, life as it is. But don't write him off as a cynic. Do not write him off as a cynic. He desperately wants you and I to enjoy life. He wants us to enjoy life. He'll say in Ecclesiastes 3, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that it is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? He wants you to enjoy every little thing about life, a meal, a glass of wine, a cup of cold water. In fact, in my own experience in studying this book, that's one of the things that that God really revealed to me is the joy in the little things that we often miss because we're so consumed by trying to be successful. We don't take the time to just enjoy the little things. In fact, it's kind of embarrassing, but I was, I was on a flight to, to London, and I was just so in the zone. I was like in, in Ecclesiastes world. I had all the books on my little, you know, tray table thing. And I'm like, Ecclesiastes, and I was on this point of like seeing that he really wants us to, to enjoy the little things in life, and the stewardess is coming by, and she's like, would you like coffee? I'm like, yes. <laughs> just, this is wonderful. Like, coffee is so great, and water is so great. But oftentimes, we take for granted the very thing that two-thirds of the world would die to have. And the preacher helps us do that. He helps us enjoy the little things in life. But he also gives us caution. After all, Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. He gives us caution. In fact, a word of caution would be necessary when you study this book, if you do, because you need to look at everything in its context. Otherwise, you'll pull out a verse like this out of its context, Ecclesiastes 10. Bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Some of you are like, I don't know if that should be in the Bible. So before you tweet it, try this one. (laughs) Ecclesiastes 9 says, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you're going. In other words, he says, go for it, but remember you're all going to (laughs) die. You're like, wow, like you don't want to invite him to the party. (laughs) Like who wants that guy? But what he's, he, he eventually gets to that point. It's the elephant in the room, which is death. He can't escape it. He's not trying to be morbid. He's being realistic. Everyone must face it. In our cities, we pride ourselves in talking about all the hot topics. But the one thing that I don't hear people talk a lot about is death. We'll talk about money. We'll talk about sex. We'll talk about politics. But rarely will people talk about death. And the preacher says, it's the elephant in the room. It's there and no one will notice it. We try to hide it in a million different ways. But what's the best way to hide an elephant? Close your eyes. Pretend it's not there. But he says you can't escape it. You can't escape it. And at every turn throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he comes to that dead end. But he actually says it's good for us to realize that. In Ecclesiastes 7, it's one of my favorite verses in the book. 
It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. My father died almost 10 years ago at UCSF. I watched him pass. And I will never forget that day when it really made me take into account the fact that my life is short. What am I doing with it? Whatever you claim to believe all gets tested when you bury people. I just did a funeral a few weeks ago of a 24-year-old man who came to our Easter service, not a Christian. He got saved. He met Jesus. He watched his sister get baptized. He had a stroke nine days later and died. And I did his funeral two weeks ago. Death must be faced. And the preacher helps us do that. And in all these things, what he's trying to get us to observe is the crookedness of life. Like it says there in verses 12 through 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. There's joy, there's difficulty. It's like a coat hanger. You know those coat hangers you get from the dry cleaners? You you ever try to like untangle one and use it to unlock your car? Like, I don't know, maybe it's just me. Might have done that on several occasions. But I dare you to try and put a coat hanger back to its original state. You just can't. You just can't. And that's what he's saying life is like. I I just can't. Put it straight. I come, to this, I come to this dead end. What do I do? He helps us to observe all these things. It was Alexander the Great who, who had very specific instructions for his funeral. He said, when I die, I want my doctors to carry my casket. I want all of my jewels being dropped on a trail behind me. And when you bury me, I want my hand hanging out of the coffin. You can only imagine his, you know, scribes being like, okay. It's a little freaky. Why? He said, because I want everyone to know three things. No doctor in the world can keep you from death. Everything that you've earned will eventually go to somebody else. And thirdly, what you came into this world is exactly what you'll go out with, nothing. And the preacher helps us do that. So what's he getting that? Like if we just stop there, like let's pray. Can you imagine that? It would just be the best sermon ever. (laughs) He's getting us to observe so that secondly, we would ask the questions we're afraid to ask. He's getting us to observe so that we might ask the questions we are so often afraid to ask. See, Ecclesiastes is the question to which the rest of Scripture is the answer. And there you begin to find all of the connections to the book of Genesis. See, the preacher, again and again, as he explores all these different avenues in life, he starts asking, what is the point? What does all this mean? What does it add up to in the end? That's the point of his phrase at the beginning of chapter 1, when he says, what does man gain? That's an ancient way of saying, what does it all mean in the end? What does a man gain? What does it add up to? What is the sum total? When you breathe your last, and you will, what have you gained? What is the profit? What carries over? What is the point. In my work, why am I working so hard? Money, what do I think that money will get me? Everyone's dying for money and yet everyone will die without it. What about community? Why am I so lonely? And then when I discover community, which he talks about later on in chapter four, why are there so many frustrations in it? What about pleasure? What will pleasure do for me? And what about death? See, what he does in in these 
chapters is he tests all of those avenues. Okay, I'm going to find my identity in this. I'm going to find my identity in that. I'm going to find meaning in life in this. He tests all of them, and then he gets you to ask the hard questions. What does it mean in the end? And in doing so, he destroys all those lame little slogans like, live for the moment. Okay, he says, but that moment's connected to many other moments. And with every moment, there's always a morning after. There's always a morning after. And that's something that he himself experiences. Okay, go for it, but then what about the next day? And the next day, and the next month, and the next year? There are consequences that are real. We're all guilty of that. Our culture is so consumed by the moment that we forget the big picture. In fact, even as Christians, we're guilty of that. We're like, oh yeah, Jesus, whatever, Christianity, like the moment. But that moment's connected to another moment. And there are consequences. There are results to the, to the decisions that you and I make day in, day out. But he's saying, if this is all there is, if this is it, if this is all there is, what about morality? Or is it, there really is no point for morals because goodness and badness is related to purpose. Right? If you ask me the question, is a knife bad? I'm like, it depends. Are you using it to kill someone or you know, put butter on your toast? It depends. Goodness and badness is connected to purpose. He says, if there's no point to life, then what about morality? And what about joy? And what about justice? That's one of the most infuriating things to the preacher. He says, because the fool dies just like the wicked. The philanthropist will die just like the idiot. They all die. Now pause for a moment and think about why this is healthy. You're like, I'm trying to see why this could possibly be healthy. Here's why these hard questions are good. They help us to avoid, first of all, simplistic answers. They help us to avoid simplistic answers. See, a lot of times Christians are accused of offering simplistic answers, and it only shows that you haven't wrestled with the hard questions. And that's why a lot of Christians are accused of being escapists, living an ostrich-like existence. Like, just go away. I'm going to like, you know, I heard about some about the second coming, so I'm going to leave the city, you know, live up in a tree and make jam until Jesus comes back, you know. And then when you ask, when, when they engage with other people who are struggling with life, they have no answers because they haven't really dealt with the questions. See, when you give simplistic answers, it shows that you really haven't wrestled with the hardship of life. I think the preacher would have hated phrases like, it's all good. Like, can you imagine if the preacher of Ecclesiastes was around when some guy just said, it's all good, man? He's like, what are you, are you, are you, are you an idiot? No, it's not all good. Or how about this one? Time heals all wounds. Does it? Time doesn't heal all wounds. It's what happens in time that matters. See, it helps us to avoid simplistic answers, and it also helps us to avoid sloppy faith. A sloppy faith that doesn't take the time to actually understand how all the, the, the different things that happen day in, day out are actually connected to our faith. You've, the, the book of Ecclesiastes will really test you and help you really know what it is that you believe. If we as the church do not face the harsh realities of life that everyone else so clearly sees, then people around us will not listen to what we have to say. If I show up to a funeral and I just say, everything's wonderful, do you think anyone's going to listen to me? If I don't acknowledge that there's an open casket two feet away from me 
then I'm going to be seen, I'm going to seem as completely and utterly, at best, irrelevant, at worst, insensitive. If we haven't called it like it is. And thirdly, these hard questions will take you out of superficial living. See, this book shows you that if there is a faith that is real, you can't compartmentalize it like we do with our little pie charts. Oh, here's my social life over here. There's this over here. There's that over there. This book deals with all of life. It deals with all of life. Ecclesiastes blows our cover. All the the slogans and the cliches and the dumb answers that we often give, Ecclesiastes blows our cover. And his conclusion, under the sun, is it's all vanity. And he says that word again and again and again. In fact, my daughter, who's seven, she's like, Daddy, you're like going around everywhere like, vanity, 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 vanity. I'm like, well, I'm teaching the book of Ecclesiastes. But what does vanity mean? Most of us think vain, like, oh, I'm looking in the mirror all the time. But, But the Hebrew word is actually far more complex than that. In fact, there's no one English equivalent. Sometimes the word vanity can mean transient, like it's passing away. So he'll, he'll say beauty in this book. He doesn't say beauty is bad. He, he doesn't knock you if you're beautiful. He just says, enjoy it while it lasts, because it doesn't. Some of you are like, yep, amen. <laughs> enjoy it while it lasts, but it's transient. In other cases, the word vanity means absurd. When he talks about justice and he says, here we are trying to work for justice and then everyone goes to the same place. He's like, this is absurd to me. And sometimes the word can mean meaningless. In fact, if, if you, I believe it's the NIV that renders it meaningless. Meaningless, says the preacher. All is meaningless. He is boldly stating to everyone for all centuries to hear, what if there is no point? See, what he's showing is that all of life If it's only under heaven, if it's all east of Eden, so to speak, then everything is a failed attempt at trying to recreate our own Garden of Eden with no forbidden fruit other than than what our own tastes despise, but then there's also absolutely no meaning. Peter Kraft, uh, a philosophy professor in Boston, once said, ancient man's fear was death. Medieval man's fear was judgment, but modern man's fear, modern man's worst fear is meaninglessness. I read an article in the Huffington Post a few months back where a a young guy in his 20s was writing a piece, uh, and it was called, Is This All There Is? And he said, my generation, with all the advances that we've taken, he says, we also struggle with utter meaninglessness. See, Ecclesiastes is God's revelation of what life is like without God's revelation, it's, it's like the silhouette of the Bible. It's like the big question. It's getting us to ask those questions that we're afraid to ask. And in so doing, it's getting to the heart. You have to ask, why do, even as a Christian, why am I working? Why am I in community? What am I doing this for? Why am I living in this city? How should I live? Why should I live? And it's getting... It's in getting us to ask these that he prepares us for third and finally, he prepares us to listen. He prepares us to listen to the revelation of God. See, he's not an atheist. He's a practical secularist. Big difference. See, the atheist is usually militant. You know, like there is no God and spending all their time arguing. But he's functioning more like a practical secularist. Like I I don't really care. See, isn't that what you come across? Like most people, when I talk about God, most people just don't care. Like God, there, here, whatever, I really don't care. 
We're just functioning, just going along life. A lot of Christians function like that as well. But the preacher helps us face the hard facts. He's not been functioning as an atheist, but as a practical secularist. And it's when he reaches this point of utter frustration, when he sees death and comes to his conclusion of vanity, that he starts to listen. In fact, he starts coming back full circle, all the way back to that book that so many people mock and despise, the book of Genesis. See, in Ecclesiastes, you will find all the things acknowledged in the book of Genesis acknowledged here in this book. He'll say that we must listen to God as creator. He acknowledges that God created. If there is no creator, there's no point to even the enjoyment. But if there is a creator, then there's, there, there's a purpose. There's a meaning. And so that's why this book helps us in our cities to really enjoy common grace. That's why we just can't have any time wasted on legalism. You know, those who like, oh no, that, that, that might make me happy. So like, I, I can't en- enjoy that. See, legalists are the worst advertisements for the Christian faith. They're the worst advertisements for the Christian faith because they do not acknowledge what God created, the good that God created. But the preacher says, God gave us food and drink and community to enjoy. It just must be connected to its purpose. See, the hedonist goes off and says, okay, there's no meaning. I'm cutting it apart from God, but then the end is vanity. The legalist says, okay, there, there is a God, but then there's no meaning and, and point you know, in, in me enjoying these things. But actually, there's a third way. God is a creator of all good things. Paul the Apostle affirms that even in the New Testament. These things, God has given us freely all things to enjoy, and they are sanctified through prayer and thanksgiving. That's why the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 9, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. But he also acknowledges God as sovereign. He is sovereign over our lives. He's sovereign over our our world. In other words, we're not in control. As much as you would like to think that you're in control of your career or that you're in control of what's happening in all your circumstances right now, think again. In fact, Ecclesiastes 3 is one of the most beautiful poems, one of the most well-known passages in the whole book because the birds, remember them, anyone, 60s? To everything. You'll have it stuck in your head the rest of the day. But it's the whole poem about there's a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, but you're not in control. These things are, are thrust upon you. You can't control it. Whether you're rich or you're poor or small or great, there's one thing that we all have in common. 24 hours in a day, that none of us are in control of. Doesn't matter what country you're from, we all have the same amount of time and they're all ultimately out of our control. So in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. You are not in control. And thirdly, he acknowledges that God is judge. God is the judge. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8 that God's the one that subjected the world to vanity or futility. In fact, it's the only time that the word vanity is used in the Greek New Testament is in Romans chapter 8 when it says that God subjected the world to futility in hope. Why? It was a judicial verdict against our sin, a judicial verdict against our rebellion. Now, the fact that God is judge is both good news and it's alarming, It's good news because it means, oh, good, there is a point to everything I do, to to how I enjoy food and drink and community and work and life and debt. There is a point. 
That's good news. But it's also alarming because it means, okay, well, how, how have I been living? What have my motives been? Am I just running on envy and jealousy and strife and bitterness? Have I been abusing God's good creation? What have I been doing? Ecclesiastes 11.9, people love the first part of the verse. It says, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. I like that. Like, follow your heart. Like, yes, now he gets it. But notice the rest of the verse, Ecclesiastes 11.9b. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. (laughs) Like, oh, oh, okay. okay. (laughs) And there's no use trying to plead innocent because he also says in Ecclesiastes 7, surely there isn't a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So if you think that that's you, you're like, well, I do good and never sin. He's like, you're lying. And everyone knows it. And you're probably not married. Because your spouse would be like, yeah, BS. (laughs) God has given this world over to its frustrating state that we might realize our fallen condition. And if this is all there is, he actually ends the book in Ecclesiastes 12, read it later, with this epic poem. It's one of the most beautiful poems in the Bible. Which is fascinating because if you remember, Genesis begins with a poem. A poem of creation. But the poem you find in Ecclesiastes 12 is far from uplifting. It's really the last word on life. He describes the decline of life. It's beautiful imagery like everything's just, the the mill is shutting down and life is slowly coming to a halt and and the sound is kind of going away and and the bowl is broken and you just read this poem and it's, it's actually a poem of decreation. So when you look at the Bible, it begins in Genesis with a poem of creation and all of God's goodness. But because of rebellion, if this is all there is, it ends with Ecclesiastes, the poem of decreation, the world under the covenant curse east of Eden. And if this is all there is, then the preacher gets the last word. And that's what sin is. Sin is the reversal of all the goodness in God's world. It's decreation. It's it's goodness reversal. That's how all of us should think about sin. It's not this kind of random, arbitrary thing. God's like, don't do that. I don't like it. Like it's actually connected to meaning. When we choose, when I think of you know sex trafficking and prostitution, it's creation reversal. It's decreation. It's the reversal of God's intent. And it's because we've we've gone in that direction that it's left us searching and longing. And if this is all there is, then it closes with the preacher's tragic words about sin and his verdict is true. All is vanity. But the interesting thing about Ecclesiastes is it actually doesn't end with the preacher. There's like a postscript, like an editor. He's like, okay, he's done. That's actually how the commentators believe it's written. He's like, okay, this is the end. We've heard all the preacher has to say. And then he adds a little postscript. Meaning that this may not be, it's kind of like the Easter egg on the DVD, you know, or if you stick around, um, you know, at the end of the credits of a film, you'll see like, oh, maybe this is not the end. Or if you saw the Avengers, it's the falafel at the end of the movie, if you saw it, and most of you obviously didn't. But Ecclesiastes 12, (laughs) verse 13 and 14 concludes like this. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
We need to face the facts as they are. And we need to fear God because he ultimately is the judge. These truths keep us humble. They allow us to know what to expect from life. You know what our struggle is in our cities? The grass is always greener in another job or in another city. And the preacher says, it's all brown. The grass is all brown. It keeps us humble in our expectations and it keeps us humble because life is short. Tomorrow is not promised to you and it's not promised to me. But these truths also keep us active, enjoying life, pursuing things that we ought. And these truths also keep us longing for transcendence. See, isn't that what everyone notices and they can't escape from? There's, there's a, a longing and a desire for transcendence. But there's no one created thing that we can blame as the problem. And there's no one created thing that we can praise as the solution. We're told to look beyond, above the heavens. But how can we reach up to heaven? The answer must be brought to us. And this is precisely what happened in Jesus Christ, the true preacher king of Israel. He said in Matthew 12, verse 42, the queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. People traveled to the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but Jesus traveled to us. He traveled into our world of futility. He could have said, you know what, guys? It's your fault. It's your problem. He could have looked at San Francisco and, and Los Angeles and all the things you're complaining about and been like, uh, first world problems, cry me a river. He could have left us there. But he actually came in. And he's the ultimate question maker. He asks the questions that really get to the heart. Like when he said in Matthew 12 four, uh, or 1626, he said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, Jesus doesn't contradict Ecclesiastes. He completes it. He asks those hard questions, but his challenge is always followed by a promise. He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't have the answers. He is the answer. The answer is not a principle. It's a person, a person who has come and lived and died and risen for us. And he came and subjected himself to, to all this crooked life under the sun. And he bore the judgment that we deserve for every evil deed and every secret thought on the cross. And he overcame what seemed to the preacher of Ecclesiastes, the end all, which is death. Because a hope that the grave can destroy is not a hope worth having, but a hope that can destroy the grave is. And that is what is found in Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes is the question to which Jesus is the answer. If Christ has not come, then nothing matters. But if Christ has come, and he has, then everything matters. And it's not until we understand that, that nothing matters without Christ that we won't understand that everything does matter because of Christ. And he will not be compartmentalized. He will not be put in a corner. He is king and Lord over everything that you do, how you enjoy a meal, how you enjoy community, how you function in your job, what you think inwardly of other people, your attitude and your approach towards the city. Jesus is Lord. And he's given free life and meaning and purpose to us as a gift because we didn't ascend to the answer. The answer came down to us. So will you 
reject it, either in whole or even as a, sometimes as a Christian in part, will you reject it enjoying the transient and meaningless pleasures of life on the way to a hopeless grave? Or will you receive it and find that every single thing you do is now injected with new meaning and purpose and everything you do is not in vain? And when you get to heaven and stand before Jesus, not one good thing will be forgotten. Jesus said, even a cup of cold water given in my name will not be forgotten. The little things that you do. My, my wife is a stay-at-home mom and she gets frustrated with the kids and one day she was wiping my little daughter's nose and she was really depressed and struggling with just all these different things in her life and she felt like the Holy Spirit said to her, I see that. I see that. Now you might think that's trivial. Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't. There's no one frustration expressed in our lives, in our own hearts, or even in Ecclesiastes that does not find its ultimate relief in Jesus Christ. So for those of us who have trusted in Christ, vanity will not have the last word because Jesus does. And for the one who trusts in Christ, the verdict is already in. The judgment verdict is already in. Righteous. You are righteous. Not because of what you've done, but because what Christ has done for you. So our life still may be full of groaning, but you're not groaning on the way to the grave. You are groaning on the way to glory. You are groaning on the way to glory. So have you considered these things in your heart? Have you really stopped to observe and ask why you're doing what you're doing with your life? And have you stopped to listen and ask God to come and to renew and rebuild what we in our sin have damaged? And he has promised that he would. He's promised that he would because of his great love for us and the meaning and purpose that he has for you. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would challenge us and cause us to see where we have participated in decreation in the way that we think about other men and women, in the way that we think about our jobs, in the way that we've used or wasted our resources. Would you cause us to understand anew and afresh that participating in sin is participating in creation reversal? I pray that we would reflect on these things even as we partake of communion and confess them to you. But I also pray, Lord, that we would rejoice because Jesus, you came and you died for those very sins and you came to redeem and you came to restore, and you came to bring down the broken down palace of our souls and to make them new. And so I pray that we would be even renewed right now in our time as we invite your Holy Spirit to come and meet us in Jesus' name. Amen.